So all I've got to go on here, Stuart, is probably one of the tiniest little biographies on a book that I've ever seen. Stuart Kells lives in Melbourne. Melbourne or Melbourne? Mel- Melburnians pronounce it Melbourne. Melbourne. Okay. Yeah. Okay for North Americans to say Melbourne. We're, we're used to it. <laughs> okay. Stuart Kells lives in Melbourne with his uh, wife, Fiona, and daughter, Thea. That's it. You're going to have to fill yeah. in the rest, uh, Stuart. Well, that's, that's a biography from about seven years ago, and I now have a second daughter as well. So, uh, And we put them as Thea and Charlotte, even though that's not alphabetical order, because Thea is four years older than Charlotte, <laughs> and so large enough to complain if she gets second. So, yeah, um, in terms of my, my, my bio, there's, there's a few online you can probably find uh, that might be more useful, including the one on Melbourne University Publishing. I'm, I'm doing quite a bit with Melbourne University Publishing at the moment. And I'm writing in a few different areas. And one of my main areas of writing is uh, in books about books and, and publishing history. And the main project I'm working on at the moment is a history of uh, Melbourne University Publishing, which is the main uh, university press in Australia and has been for the last 100 years or so. Okay, well, very good. Welcome to the Bibliophile, Stuart. Great to be here. I must comment on the the cover of uh, this book that we're going to talk about. It's Penguin and the Lane Brothers, the untold story of a publishing revolution, and it's three bowler hats. The story of that cover, uh, it was designed by a chap called Peter Long, who's a very good Australian cover designer. He's done a couple of my covers, uh, including the history I did of the Argyle Diamond Mine. And I always like seeing what Peter comes up with. Um, the idea of that cover is obviously that the three bowler hats represent the three brothers who founded Penguin. Uh, and there was a bit of back and forth about whether that was an appropriate set of symbols or not, because there's a whole conversation around class and um, fashion sense and who wore bowler hats and when and whether the Penguin brothers would have worn bowler hats or not. Um, So I encourage you and your listeners just to take that purely uh, metaphorically rather than historically. The background background to this book, there's sort of two or three main threads that came together. Uh, One was obviously that I'm interested in books about books and and publishing history, and I'm interested in sort of low fiction, so so paperbacks and, and pulp fiction, as well as the history of fine printing and more mainstream publishing. There was a bit of a penguin family diaspora in the 20th century. So of the three founding brothers and the and their sister, um, one of the uh, brothers died in World War II and one of the brothers settled in Australia and his sister settled in Australia. So of the three surviving children, two settled in Australia. Um, so if you're interested in penguin history, and Penguin Archives, uh, this is a good place to be. And so I, um, I'll i talk a bit more about this, but I got to know some of the Australian penguins uh, well. And I guess the, the sort of third thread is um, there had been a couple of histories of penguin uh, published in the past, and I thought for various reasons that they were pretty unsatisfactory. Uh, there was a, a major uh, commissioned history I think it was Jeremy Lewis uh, from memory, um, which was a sort of heavy 
official uh, Penguin history. With beautiful end papers, I must say. Yeah, the end papers are, I don't, mean, I don't want to sound kind of sort of snarky about it, but the end papers are one of the best things about that book. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> it, pretty it, snarky. That's pretty a, snarky. It is a good book. It is a good book. And it's an interesting piece of publishing. But there are two main problems with it. Um, one is that even though it's writing about books and literature and book history, it kind of breaks every rule of storytelling and telegraphing and that kind of thing. So um, it's not a particularly satisfying read. Uh, and the other is that it perpetuates a series of sort of corporate myths and Alan Lane myths around the story of Penguin. So um, I came into this project partly with a sort of myth-busting uh, lens and having spoken to the Penguin family, the Lane family in Australia, the ones that settled in Australia were pretty frustrated about how their story had been told or not told and, um, and the, the sort of myths and the versions that were, you know, the mainstream Penguin story. And so examples of that, if they looked on the Wikipedia pages for Penguin or the Bodley Head or, or Alan Lane, it would say Alan Lane founded Penguin in 1935 and blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, in a lot of the Penguin reissues in the last sort of 10 or 20 years, I'm not sure about the ones in Canada, but definitely all the ones in Australia and some of the ones in the UK had a little paragraph at the back that said, yeah. you know, 35 or whatever, 1934, Alan Lane was at a railway platform and he had this brilliant idea about low-cost paperbacks and, you know, history happened. And um, that story is yeah, not you true. Yeah, you could get a book for the, the price of a cigarette pack. Yeah, that, that kind of narrative. And yeah. it's a fun story and it's an interesting story. But that, that was a set of myths that weren't really kind of crafted until the 1970s. Sorry, you call that a garage myth? Yes, yes. The, the um, Penguin Railway platform creation myth. <laughs> and yeah, it's the equivalent of, yeah, that's right. It's the equivalent of the garage myth for Penguin. That's right. And, and as I say in the book, the thing about garage myths is that they ignore a lot of what's happening in the context. They ignore a lot of what's happening with other founders uh, and precedents. Uh, and Penguin had some pretty uh, solid precedents. So coming into the project very much with a view to try and correct the record, partly for the family uh, and partly because of my own views about how it had been written in the past. And so what we tried to do, what I tried to do with, with help from my wife and, and um, one of the Penguin granddaughters was to actually produce a, um, a fact-based history and a fact oh dear there's that uh, word again yes well at least at least one that was based on documentation and, and okay uh, okay good this is the australian fact right well no not necessarily there are two main archives that we um, drew on one was the um, major archive in australia which was um richard lane's family had you know boxes and boxes of letters and other material which was in um, Elizabeth Lane's home at the time and is now in the University of Melbourne. And the other archive was the main Penguin archive in um, Bristol, the Penguin corporate archive. And we had excellent access to both. No, I'm pulling, you, I'm pulling your leg a bit. That's all right. But, I'm happy to go through it. But it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because you do spend uh, quite a bit of time with Richard and his early uh, years quite difficult years uh, in Australia before 
going back and and jumping into the bottle head and penguin with the, with the other brothers you say that his character and, and his his strong good character was forged in australia well almost i think he was a good person beforehand but yeah his world view very much and his um, his determination to become a book person his interest in supplying books for everyone um all of those sorts of things were were very much artifacts of having worked in a very not bookish context and um, it's hard to explain how remote and how kind of uh, marginal and, and impoverished uh, his experience was here but yeah this is between the wars so early 1920s in these um very dry unpromising regions of south australia and new south wales where people were re- really trying to scrape a living out of sand and and dirt um without farms being of the right scale and without uh, a lot of the key uh, inputs so he went from a sort of a lower middle class um reasonably comfortable living in in bristol with a lovely family around him that's right a supportive family his parents were a loving pair of parents they loved each other and they loved their kids but as i say in the book he i think they were better at planning births and um, the births all happened with this beautiful three year regularity of four children but they really had the parents really had no idea about what to do with the children once they were born <laughs> yeah. um and so they had this idyllic lifestyle for a while of just running around in the forests out in bristol and just doing their own thing and getting into adventures and pulling pranks at school and that kind of thing and it was really just by chance that the penguin connection the publishing connection sort of arrived on their doorstep through this people describe alan lane sorry john lane as their uncle or as their parents uncle that's a real stretch of the word uncle <laughs> um but he was a distant relative with connections in that sort of part of of england particularly in devon farming connections in that area and no children of his own uh, he'd married a a um, divorcee or a widower sorry a widow um Annie Eichberg so he sort of adopted the 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 Williams children at the time um so John Lane shows up on the doorstep and offers um their eldest their firstborn <laughs> um not necessarily their most bookish child but their firstborn a chance to go and work in London uh, in the um in the Bodley Head the condition is that Alan changed his surname to Lane from Williams Lane was one of their ancestral names and it was um i think alan had it as an, a middle name and uh, so when he changed his name it became alan lane williams lane uh, which was slightly absurd um and then the rest of the family um jumped in and changed their surname as well partly for reasons of what was what was seen as proper because they didn't want to have children with different surnames so the williams family became the lane family So yeah it was an idyllic uh, idyllic sort of family situation in in um, Bristol within limits but a very difficult situation that Richard had in Australia. Yeah so so Richard finds himself in Australia and there are three chapters in the um early part of the book that describe that and for a couple of reasons one is because the family were determined to have that part of the story be told but also um as we've touched on Richard's experiences in Australia framed and and influenced the the later founding of penguin and also there's a nice set of bookends where richard's in australia early in his life and then he comes back to australia to found well well to 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 grow and leave over yeah penguin australia yeah 
yeah, that, so coming into it, those, those sorts of um, motivations. Basically, it is to even the score a bit, to give uh, the other brothers their due, because Alan uh, has, has basically dominated the story up to, to the point of your book being published. Is that it? Well, sort of. Um, even the score probably implies that I've kind of overcorrected the other way, and, and I don't think I have. Um, well, I you, think... you were pretty snarky, though, I must say. Well, uh, all of the things that the book has about Alan uh, are fact-based. Yeah, they're not in there just for fun. So the way that the history has been told is very much that Alan was the, the prominent foremost brother. Now, I think it's important to unpick that a little bit because he was the most prominent and dominant foremost rather not because he was the smartest or the most entrepreneurial or the the best editor or the best reader or the best thinker or the most accomplished book person he was the dominant and foremost brother because he was the most egotistical and ruthless ambitious and well ambitious in a bad sense uh, rather than in a good sense right whereas uh, his co-founders were much more modest um, much more um, egalitarian in their outlook. Uh, yep. And again, Richard brought that a bit from Australia. Uh, I, I'd have to say that um, John Lane, who was the, the, the brother, not the uncle, was much more sceptical about Alan uh, and probably more ready to challenge Alan and to call out Alan's egotism, whereas Richard, the middle brother, had a a very complex relationship with Alan and a very, a very loving and respectful relationship with Alan, but also one where Richard was at the sort of sharp end of a lot of Alan's, you know, misbehaviour. But um, John Lane Jr. died in World War II and therefore, uh, which only, only seven years after the venture was founded, and therefore his scope to influence the, the culture of the place and, and the way that the history was told was cut short, right? And so what you were left with was Alan, who was ambitious in a bad sense, um, and Richard, who was a very mild and very um, modest person. So it was ripe for for what happened, which was that Alan wrote the history in a way that was um, um, most beneficial to himself and his own ego and his own influence. And also he pushed his, his brother out of the business in ways that were quite awful. So that part of it, the, the, you know, the, the lead up to the float uh, and the changes in ownership towards the end of, of Alan's life, that story had never been told uh, either. It is, it's a harrowing read, right? And, and it does paint Alan in a, um, in a pretty awful light. Some of the ways that he treated his wife, some of the ways that he treated other people in his family, um, his mistresses and, and all that. But it's the truth, right? The book wasn't published by Penguin. It wasn't uh, in any sense uh, an authorised edition. It's published by Black Ink. What's the kind of, what is that imprint? They're an independent publisher in Australia. So we, we offered the book to Penguin and to a few other publishers. The short version with Penguin, I think at the time they were planning their 80th anniversary and so an existing sort of schedule in mind. But it's not anti-Penguin as, a, as an entity. No, from. it's not. No, it's and just it, painting. It's painting a hero. Uh, it's, it's giving him some flaws. That's right. And there have been people in the 
Penguin sort of universe who've embraced the book. Um, and we, obviously we had permission to use the archive. Um, so as far as I can tell, there's no kind of uh, negative energy. <laughs> no one sued you? Uh, not so far. And, and uh, no, I'm, I'm touching wood there. No, 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 not so far. It's very much based on the archival information and, and um, letters and sources that, that, that back things up. I think part of the reason why it has that um, sort of harrowing and, and slightly sort of what you talked about as being a bit snarky is because it comes at it really with no uh, agenda of burnishing the Allen no. Lane story, right? It's, it's telling it warts and all. Um, and, um, yeah, it does rebalance it uh, very much towards the brothers. Now, in terms of the, the original goals of that, if you look now at uh, Wikipedia and a few other Penguin resources and other things, they almost now invariably say Penguin was founded by the three Lane brothers. I think you've had an impact then. I think I yes. have. Yep. That's how you end off the epilogue. You say that uh, they're not even mentioned uh, on, the, on the Penguin uh, website as co-founders. Correct. So Penguin have yep. rectified that and Wikipedia has rectified that. So if you go to the first line of Penguin books on Wikipedia now, it'll mention Richard and John as well. And the same thing on the Allen Lane uh, page. Uh, and that for the family uh, is, a, is a small victory. But <laughs> it's very gratifying, right? In, in no sense is it, you know, trying to twist or, or uh, manipulate history. The fact is the three of the three brothers did found Penguin, right? You've got a nice little line. You say that they deserve more than to be shunted into the shade. <laughs> mm. And and there's another sort of nice sub sub story there, which is around Krishna Menon. There's a group of people who sort of claim that Krishna Menon was another co-founder of Penguin. This appears on some some pages and somewhere some places in the internet. I think partly that reflects a certain amount of rewriting of history or of mischief making, but also I think it's a bit of a naive confusion of Penguin and Pelican, which often happens. Right. But as you know, Pelican was a bit later and very much a non-fiction uh, imprint uh, within the Penguin family. So it's true that um, Menon had a, an important role in Pelican, but he wasn't there at the, at the foundation moments of no. Penguin. Well, in fact, Alan pissed him off, didn't he? Yes, royally, <laughs> in ways that affected, among other things, Indian independence. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, he's taking out his anger on white people, right? I think that's one way that this, this, the history has been written that's from it. Um, well, just quickly, on those earlier biographies and those earlier histories, so I've, I've, I've had a bit of a go, and I apologise, uh, about uh, Jeremy Lewis's history, but there was another one, which was uh, Jack Morpurgo's yes. book um, called Pen King Penguin. Jack had worked for Alan at Penguin and had a very bad experience, was sort of very much in the Alan mode. Alan surrounded himself with, were quite good people and a lot of the time when Alan was in charge Penguin uh, and, and the Bodley Head made disastrous choices and decisions and so whenever Penguin succeeded it tended to be um, because it was winning and succeeding despite rather than because of Alan and, 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 one, and one reason why was because he had good people around him and Jack Morpurgo was one of those whose son ended up marrying one of Alan's daughters, right? So it's all a bit kind of complicated. But um, one of the things that Alan tended to do was to dangle the prospect of being Alan's successor, 
right? And he did this to Richard, he did this to Jack and a few others. And when Jack turned it, realised that it was just a, a bit of a hoax and, and a dangling, but that Alan had no intention of actually ever handing anything over to Jack, he wrote a very critical biography of Alan, which was much snarkier and much more negative <laughs> than the book. Oh, wonderful. That's wonderful. Actually, I did skim through that before... Uh before this and uh he does credit john for his uh tactics early on saying that they were more important at that stage than mm. which supposedly is what alan was praised for yes i think that's right i think john and, and richard were both very astute and they worked hard setting up a new venture uh if you if you're an entrepreneur part of it is having a couple of really good ideas but a lot of it is actual fulfillment, actually doing it. And in those very early days when they were working from, you know, the, the crypt underneath the church and, and they were handling, you know, tens of thousands of copies, se- selling a penguin every few seconds, and they went from print runs of 17,000 to suddenly selling, you know, copies in the millions. These guys were working around the clock, you know, working with printers, working with uh, authors, and it was intense, hard work and I, again, I don't want to sound like an anti-Alanist, but his main reflex whenever there was hard work was, was to go on holidays. Uh, he spent right. a large part of his life on holidays, right? He didn't like the smell of the place. <laughs> he didn't like the smell of the crypt or the feeling of being sort of, you know, a bit claustrophobic, that's right. And that's fair enough because it, it did smell of um, mice and death uh, and um, the tyres that used to be stored there. Um, before the books took over. But uh, yeah, so Alan wasn't someone who uh, could claim the original idea. He couldn't claim to have worked hard to make it happen. uh, And he couldn't claim any kind of, you know, uh, accounting or executive nous to actually build the business. What he was doing was really fronting it. And there was a sense in the family that because he was the firstborn, he was, you know, in a sense, the most important brother and the one with the highest profile. And so uh, he was, in a sense, aided, aided and abetted by that view in the family that um, Alan was Alan and he would go on and claim credit for things that other people did. Well, he, he must have had, and he did have, a, a fair amount of charisma and charm, though. Absolutely, yeah. When he wanted, when he wanted. I mean, he was mercurial, but... Yes, that's right. He could turn it on uh, and turn it off. That's right. There's some great lines in the book about, you know, in an instant in switching from being very kind of, you know, cheerful and charming to, to sort of looking very Machiavellian and plotting someone's downfall because of a perceived slight or some kind of you know, transgression that he needed to punish. He was a very particular kind of CEO. I, would, I wouldn't say unique because there are other sort of CEOs through history that have a similar sort of character. But there are lines um, like when later on when there's a, a construction site next to um, Penguin and there's this sort of pile driver making banging sound and, and the, one of the executives quips that that's Alan testing out his guillotine um, so that he can you know, randomly sack the next executive. As I said, he, he was um, in some senses lucky that he was surrounded by very capable people, uh, including Eunice Frost, who was uh, a very long-standing, long-serving Penguin editor and executive uh, and later on a board member. She was a, an extremely capable person and really for a long time the backbone culturally as well as editorially of the, of the business. So this book also 
and captures the contributions of people like her um, in the Penguin story uh, more so, I think, than previous histories have. You know, the interesting thing is very early on, I think in the, uh, I mean, like the second or third year, Alan is, Alan pays himself 10,000 pounds and the other two brothers make nothing, it seemed. <laughs> why would yeah. they, why would they accept that if they were supposedly equal partners? Why on earth would they accept that? Well, it's a really good question, and it wasn't just the the, the sort of direct cash benefits. Um, Alan had a very fashionable apartment in the middle of London, uh, which was paid for by the company. Uh, the company also paid for you know expenses of his mistress and other things. Yeah, uh, there's a few different reasons why they they put up with it. One was, as I said, the complex psychology of the relationship between the brothers. Um, another was, particularly in Richard's case that um, Alan had this sort of a, a, a sort of soft agreement with him that um, Alan would be, you know, the main shareholder, very much the King Penguin um, while he was alive, but that Richard would inherit that role and that, that wealth. Richard, I think, tolerated a certain uh, amount of that, mainly because he saw himself as the successor. Now, uh, as the book says, uh, Alan honoured that agreement in every respect except in the observance of it. That's right. Uh, and uh, that was a large part of, of the, the sort of end game uh, between them. Alan was never a particularly healthy person. He was always going to these fat farms and trying to lose <laughs> weight. Yes. Yes, his favourite book was, was about, you know, the stomach and um, how to manage dependency <laughs> yeah. towards um, weight, weight gain, that's right. It wasn't you know, something by Tolstoy or <laughs> Virginia Woolf. Right, <laughs> it wasn't a literary person at all. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so he was often going off to, to Spain or Portugal or, or wherever to, to just sort of, um, you know, detox and other things. Richard outlived him by quite a, quite a, a long period, but um, certainly was by that time not, yeah, treated as as the successor or or as a sort of co-owner or a co-founder. No, but what you reference is, uh, and, and this is just getting into trying to explain the success of the company. You talk about a creative opposition among the brothers that constituted uh, penguins secret weapons so maybe you could i don't like the word unpack but maybe you could explain that for us sure so right from the beginning the, the three of them were planning ventures even from within the bodily head so there's there's another uh, incorrect narrative that's made its way into wikipedia and other things is that the brothers left the bodily head to found penguin yeah. That's not correct. It was founded as an imprint of the bodily head and from within the bodily head. And even before that, the brothers were planning and executing publishing ventures from within the bodily head, including the first English edition of Ulysses, uh, a, a very important and successful book, which came out just after Penguin was, was founded. And, and as a bodily head publication that was entirely bankrolled and conceived and executed by the, the, the Lane brothers. So they had this special license within the bodily head, uh, having inherited a, a large shareholding in the bodily head and Alan having become uh, the, effectively the CEO of the bodily head. Um, they had this sort of entrepreneurial 
license within there. And that, that license was very much something that the, the brothers worked on themselves. So they, they spent a lot of time, including in the bathroom, um, while shaving and, and sitting on the, on the loo. And using planting. the same bath water. Yes, yeah, that's right. Topping it up occasionally. That's right. Trying to sort of um, talk about the world and publishing in order to delay getting out of the bath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there were these sort of nice entrepreneurial dynamic uh, between the three of them. And they brought all sorts of different perspectives to that. So John Lane was very good at the trade and exporting side of things. He had a really good understanding of the, you know, the, the sort of the way that the market received books and the way that the publishing world worked. Uh, Richard had a very strong literary sense and also a nice uh, aesthetic sense of, of fine publishing. He'd worked in uh, the first edition club uh, with AJA Simons before Penguin and before the Bodley Head, and he'd had other encounters with fine publishing, uh, and he was a bibliophile. And then uh, Alan had uh, a lot of front <laughs> and a lot of ambition uh, yeah. and a lot of really good relationships and contacts as well. He was friends with Agatha Christie. He was friends with a lot of um, you know fashionable literary and commercial people in London. Well, he's awfully. He was good looking too. I mean, he really was. I describe him as a, as a sort of a, a young Ewan McGregor. <laughs> I think if there's ever a Penguin movie, we need to get Ewan McGregor to, to play <laughs> Alan okay. Lane. If we can get the movie off the ground before Ewan McGregor stops <laughs> um, <laughs> looking like that. Speaking of aesthetics, uh, I was impressed. I guess I knew it, but this reminded me of it, that Eric Gill was the one who designed mm. that golden bow on the front cover of Ulysses. Yes, and that, and that kind of interplay between sort of fine printing and the, the, the bibliographic arts and then trade publishing and then paperback publishing is a really powerful part of the Penguin story, right? So even those early, very cheaply produced, simply uh, done uh, paperbacks had yeah. you know, artwork from people like Robert Gibbings, you know, had nice woodcuts on the, on the front uh, not long after the very plain typographic ones. And they had a very strong typographical sense. And obviously that was heightened um, when Jan Tischold uh, joined the firm as well. So even though we tend to characterise Penguin as a sort of mass market paperback publisher, the, there was a, a direct uh, line into fine printing and you know, the book arts, uh, which was, I think, part of their success. And, and Richard was a really important part of that bridge, right, uh, through his own experiences, but also through um, you know, his own aesthetics and his own uh, relationships. Um, and he and Alan uh, appointed uh, Jan Tischold and directed Jan Tischold to, together. So um, answering your question of what's the sort of creative engine and, the, and this sort of nice creative tension, it's having the three together to test each other's ideas. Um, Alan on his own was a bit of a disaster, as I said, and he would take on books that clearly were not going to be profitable. I think there was a series of, uh, I think it was a Disney series late in the Bodley yeah. Head era called The Sillies, which were like a kind of mass market children's book. But they cost something like, you know, 20 shillings each to produce. And Alan was talking about selling them for sixpence. It's like, well, you're going to make a hefty loss on every copy, no matter what you do. And so they're the sorts of things that Richard helped with. R Richard was sort of the first editor of Penguin. But and he, he was also, also good at, uh, he was very good at costing, you point out. 
Exactly. And as you know, uh, in publishing, that is just as important. Uh, being able to cost the book and being able to understand the, the financial and accounting side of it is just as important because there's no point in being a publisher that you know disappears after five minutes. And especially when you're you know putting out 20,000 copies <laughs> um, of a book that's already appeared in other covers, right? Because most of the early Penguins were reprints. There's a certain amount of risk attached to that. Um, and another part of the story that hadn't really been told very much was, was how the brothers were able to take those risks. Uh, and as I said, they were very much operating within the bodily head, but they were also um, funded by the Lane inheritance. So um, Annie Lane, uh, who was um, John Lane Sr.'s widow, essentially willed all of her wealth to the Lane children, uh, and that gave them that capacity to, to take a few uh, financial risks. Um, and so that's another important story, and, and a North American connection as well, because she was, she was from Boston. What else do you think explains the, their success? Well, looking back on all of these sorts of businesses, you have to remember that timing and luck are incredibly yeah. important. If you had have done exactly the same thing 10 years earlier or 10 years later, it might not have worked, right? So it's about timing. It's about luck. Uh, and, you know, one of the first things they tell MBA students is don't be fooled by the fact that, you know, Rupert Murdoch or Elon Musk or whatever did what they did because um, they may have done exactly the same thing and adopted exactly the same strategy and not succeeded, right? But there were a few things behind it. One was coming out of the, the Great Depression. Um, the world was ripe for this sort of very low-cost uh, enterprise. Because if you think about it, it's not just the books that are cheap. In order to have super cheap books, you have to have super low royalties. You need to have small payments to the previous owners of the, the, the um, intellectual property. You need to have relatively small payments to printers. So the Great Depression softened everyone up <laughs> for that. And we've only just sort of touched on it, but uh, obviously emulating Albatross, uh, which, which predated Penguin a few years, um, the fact that Albatross didn't survive uh, World War II or the lead-up to the Nazi regime in Germany uh, took away a major competitor uh, of Penguin uh, at, at what happened to be the right time uh, for Penguin. So there are all those sorts of on the On the continent, at least, yes. That's right. But they were um, publishing it in English um, and had a sort of an international reach as well. But not in England or in the United States. No, but obviously if they had have continued and if they had a, a parallel imprint, then who knows where they would have ended up. Because em Penguin emulated their model in a quite a lot of ways, not just in terms of the format and the, the branding, but also, you know, the colour coding of genres and the kinds, the mode of publishing was quite similar. So there were those sorts of timing uh, and, and serendipitous things. And then, uh, as I said, uh, the, the business was lucky enough to attract some very capable people, not just the lanes, but um, people like Eunice Frost, um, some very important art historians. They had this nice mixture of academic authors, but also um, mainstream literary authors and engaging nonfiction writers. So, you know, the, the actual niche and ethos of the kinds of material, which was very reader-focused, very reader-friendly, it wasn't sort of forbidding academic stuff, but it also maintained quite a high editorial standard and quite a high literary standard. All of those ingredients, obviously, if you're going to try and set up a publishing 
house uh, with, with the benefit of hindsight, that's exactly the niche that you would go for, right? Um, because it, it um, maintains standards and, and, and um, it respects the reader, but it also entertains and engages the reader, right? So it was a, it was a perfect niche. And there was a sort of a nice blending of the sort of publishing side and the literary content with the marketing content. So the Penguin brand, the Penguin packaging, you know, people bought penguins because they were penguins. They didn't buy them because they were Agatha Christie or they were, you know, Graham Greene. Obviously, there's exceptions to that, but people would buy penguins because it was an imprint that they knew, it was an imprint that they could trust. And so that kind of, you know, very strong 20th century current of branding and licensing of other people's intellectual property and Penguin were uh, entrepreneurial and, and um, early in that thread as well. But, you know, having said that, Penguin came close to the abyss several times. They almost went broke uh, several times in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. It's a bit like Lego. It's a bit like Mattel. They've had upswings and downswings, you know, good, good years and bad years. Um, and if you replayed it, as I said, if you replayed it and changed a few things in the, in the story, then it could have turned out very differently. Just getting back to the look of the Albatross books, I love the reference to uh, Leonardo da Vinci and the perfect, <laughs> the perfect looking book or the perfect size, you know. And another aspect of timing, Penguin did extremely well in the Second World War because they had a tie-up with the, um, you know, the armed forces. And the Penguin yeah. format was, was a perfect size and a perfect weight to include in a care package or to put in your, you know, your pocket. In your pocket, yeah. Total. And, and so that those sorts of relationships were really important in driving, you know, the mass production because there were huge orders, but also in making Penguin more than just a publisher. They were part of the state, you know, they were part of the cultural heritage of the country. So I describe it as a bit of a privately owned BBC people trusted Penguin because it was, was more than just a publishing house. It was a British institution uh, and a Commonwealth institution. Yeah. Well, in fact, again, just an can- interesting little Canadian angle, they traded Penguins for paper from Canada, mm. you say. Yes. And the North American story is really interesting. Um, and, and again, attesting to, to um, how close to the edge Alan uh, regularly... Uh, skated well during during World War II. He tried to break the um, paper cartel. The, sorry, the um, the wartime rationing of, of paper. Even though it was generous, wasn't it? They because they'd done really well uh, the, the year previous, which was how it was calculated. Exactly, that's right. Uh, a lot, a lot of series and a lot of um, standout successes. That's right. Set that set their benchmark quite high. But in the US, they came close to losing control and losing ownership of the Penguin brand and the Penguin imprint in the US. The the Americans, not to put too fine a point on it, but the Americans hated Alan and and they hated the the way that he treated them as this sort of, um, you know, colonial outpost. Uh, And as I say in the the book, uh, Americans are constitutionally against being treated like a colony and treated like (laughs) being subservient. Aren't aren't Australians? (laughs) Well, I I think our tolerance for it is a little bit higher. But uh, yeah, Americans have, have fought very hard for their for their independence. We never had a war of independence. The mode of, of Allen and how he treated executives, how he treated subordinates, how he you know made sort of very fickle 
managerial decisions. The Americans just weren't interested in any of that. They were very commercial, very go-get, very confident in their own abilities. And so the spectacular falling out uh, between the American office, as I said, almost led to Penguin US being carved out of the global Penguin uh, branding. And as you know, now, obviously, they're, they're part of a, uh, an Anglo-American group. German, they're, they're German group. Ultimately owned, that's right. But ra- random, though, was um, American in its origins, right? So in Australia, uh, that sort of fickle and um, you know, dictatorial style of Alan, that happened at the time when Richard was running Penguin Australia. But Alan would enter into new partnerships and business ventures and things without even telling Richard, uh, you know, in Australia. So he would partner up with other Australian publishers or he would make other sorts of... Yeah, it's just disrespectful, isn't it? Well, that's right. And and not great from a business planning point of view if you've got multiple executives pushing in, you know, completely conflicting directions. Well, didn't isn't that what Alan did with Kurt uh, Enoch in the States? And there was, a, was it Waybright? He, he had the two of them spying on each other without each other knowing it until they talked to each other, of course. Exactly. <laughs> so that didn't, didn't go down very well. <laughs> no. Actually, there's an interesting conversation around that, isn't there, with the Americans wanting to, to bring in uh, color yeah, yeah. covers. Yeah. That's a really important and fascinating thread in the whole story. Because as you know, very early on, the penguin covers were strongly typographical and, and very simple blocks of color. And there's yeah. a few reasons. One was because it was emulating Albatross. Another was that it was cheap, right? You didn't have to organize uh, an illustrator. You didn't have to organize permission for illustrations, etc. But some of the most uh, collectible and iconic and desirable penguin covers are some of the very early American penguins that, that did have those you know, brightly illustrated um, multicolored covers very much in the style of Dell and pocketbooks and some of the um, you know, classic American pulp publishing houses. And Alan was for a long time dead, dead against the, the American cover designs and dead against Penguin in general going down the illustrated covers track. And as you know, historically, even though people love the old Penguin covers and even though they've been emulated, Alan was wrong <laughs> about, about having illustra- not having illustrated covers. If you can imagine yeah. the history of the in the 20th century where none of them had you know, decorative or colourful covers, it would have been a very different history. Well, uh, Enoch uh, sets up Signet. Yes. Midway break. That's right. And they had a few different interests, I think. Yeah, Signet was one of them. I'm not sure it's not in the front of my mind, but I think there were one or two other main uh, major American imprints that sort of came out of Penguin in the US. Yeah. What's interesting too, just getting back quickly to uh, to Albatross, is this fascinating character, Holroyd Reese, comes in and 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 basically proposes to Alan that they split printing costs and. Mm. As I understand it, Alan got all sorts of in- good background information, details, you know, on, on the actual publishing of these books, the, you know, specs and costing and all of this sort of stuff. And, and then, of course, he, he doesn't do any, any deal with them. Yes. So Alan, Alan had a kind of deep-seated resistance to any kind of partnering and business collaboration 
So he was happy to talk to people about joint ventures and things, but very rarely went into them. Uh, he was very much about maintaining control and ownership, which obviously plays out in the American story and plays out in the Richard story as well. Um, and yeah, it's, I think it's true to say that he took a lot from those negotiations with, with Albatross. But even before Penguin was launched from the Bodley Head, there were young men in the Bodley Head who weren't any of the, the Lane brothers, putting costings together, putting designs together for the idea of a cheap, you know, sixpence uh, paperback series. So Arnold and Young, you, you referenced them. Right, exactly. Uh, and um, these, these are the guys that also, you know, were instrumental in the early, you know, designs and things. So, you know, accounting and marketing guys within the bodily head. Uh, and they were picking up on what was a, a wider conversation in Britain at the time about, you know, why can't we reach more people with cheaper books? George Bernard Shaw, among others, were champion, championing those, those ideas. And I, I point out that Alan never credited those young men in the... Um, oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, when they came to him, he sort of said, no, no, that's never going to work. Don't mention it again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, not, not an uncommon... Uh, tactic and characteristic of very successful CEOs yeah. where, where they'll sort of absorb and then come up with a bright idea a bit later, uh, which was similar to what they've been told. So, yeah, there were other cost, other people costing those out. And then obviously Richard himself was, was preparing costings as well. Yeah. You talk about that discussion about uh, pushing uh, for a growth in the reading public and providing them with, with cheap, good literature. Uh, Stanley Unwin was one of the ones who thought that the, the cheap paperbacks would cannibalize the hard the hardcover. Yes, George Orwell was another one. He famously said that all of the other publishers should join together and kill Penguin. Yeah, it was going to ruin the market and you know, ruin people's expectations of book values and that kind of thing. And obviously none of that happened. People still bought hardback books and publishing survived. And, you know, a lot of other mainstream major publishers brought out paperback imprints and tried to emulate not just the, the business model, but even the design and, and things like that. So, yeah, all of those sort of predictions that it would kill publishing uh, didn't didn't work out. And you have to remember, and I know you do, that it was very much a pre-internet, pre-television era, right? And so these and newspapers were really the, the only kind of mass delivery of this kind of content. And so the, the way that the business model worked is they could get books out very, very quickly and, and efficiently. And so there was this kind of engagement with current affairs and engagement with taste uh, and engagement with community interest as well. Um, so I describe it as a sort of a proto-internet of this huge um, mass uh, printing and mass distribution network, which you know, very much was of its time. Part of the reason for the success was that they were able to pay low royalties to the authors. Well, what about the printers? There's You reference a couple of them. Has, is it Hazel or Hazel? Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, you know much well, about them? Not, not really is the short answer. But I, as I said, I think part of the, the reason why this happened was because they'd all been through, recently through the Great Depression uh, yeah. and they were happy with any kind of throughput and any kind of deal. And early on, I think the Lane brothers 
you know, indemnified the printers to some degree with that mm -hmm. first sort of experimental uh, print run. But, yeah, as I said, they were happy with any kind of print um, order and any kind of business and the idea of having a mass market thing. I think they were happy to, to play along to a degree. And then once it really took off, it wasn't that, that the printers were, were losing money or anything. They extended credit, though, didn't they? Yeah, and it was all done on relatively fine margins, uh, as, as you would understand. But, um, yeah, I, I think fundamentally uh, the, the success of the imprint, once you're talking, like in the first few years they were producing, as I said, millions of copies. By the war, the Second World War, I think they had produced something like 100 million penguins uh, in the um, early 60s. They'd produced something like 250 million penguins. So, um, you know, if you're a printer, uh, getting a bit of that uh, action uh, is uh, very appealing. And, and, I, and I, as I pointed out in the past, if you're a book collector, getting a bit of that action is not very appealing. If something's produced in 100 million... Oh, of course, it's not exactly scary, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> yes. So penguins are great to collect and there are some rare ones, but um, yeah, don't, don't think that some of those early ones are, are hen's teeth, far from it. Yes. I'm just going to quote, quote something here from you on page 127. Achieving legibility in small books had been a problem since Caxton, the proposed penguin cost structure was only possible because of book world innovations such as machine typesetting, more precise and economical black and white printing, and the ability to print durable card covers cheaply in bright colors, and new paper stocks that used pulp and grass instead of relatively expensive rags. Near universal literacy was another enabler. Yes, and that <clears throat> that move to um, rag paper, sorry, from rag paper to um, pulp paper, uh, is the bane of the bibliophile's life, right? Because uh, a lot of these um, wear yes. out pretty. Having, having said that, the way that the first penguins appeared uh, in 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 London, they don't look exactly like what we think of as paperbacks. So they were sewn in gatherings; they weren't perfect bound. And they even had dust jackets. So they had a card cover and then they had a thin paper yes, dust yeah. over the top of it. So they were, they were emulating in some ways a standard case-bound book in the way that they were bound and in the way that they were jacketed. Um, and, yeah, there was, there was a sort, certain investment in quality. It's only later that they um, obviously were, were perfect bound, which, as you know, uh, means that they were highly imperfectly bound. And the very first Australian penguins uh, were uh, stapled uh, with metal staples. So they were one gathering uh, with, with metal staples. So they weren't even sewn or, or um, perfect bound. They were little pamphlets. And you know what's again was interesting is that you write that Richard was the one that negotiated the loan from uh, Martin's bank to get the whole thing uh, off the ground. Yeah, well, he was really the first bibliophile in chief and he was the CFO. Those conversations with banks and, and um, suppliers early on are just crucial. Yeah, now listen, here's where Australia comes in. You <laughs> say, 
Towards the planning and the management of Penguin, he directed the upbeat informality he had learned in in (laughs) Australia. Richard's casual good cheer buoyed the brothers' deliberations and nourished the fledgling imprint. Well, I could have gone a lot further. One of the themes of this book is very much the Australian aspect of it, right? Yeah. that whole part of the Penguin history really hadn't been you know, foregrounded or, or told. And in some ways, it is a, an Anglo-Australian uh, venture and an Anglo-Australian uh, imprint. As I said, the majority of the children settled in Australia and the early years of the firm were informed, obviously, by Richard's experiences in Australia. Some of the early growth was in Australia. And it's really interesting, this, this whole sort of UK history of Penguin which has branches, obviously, into the US and Australia. There's a nice segue to the quite unique history of Penguin in Australia. So Penguin in Australia was very dominant as as a publisher, uh, particularly in the second half of the 20th century. So they had a whole other thing going on here uh, where they were initiating local titles um, and were really an important Australian imprint. And you and I have spoken about this in the past about how you know, Canadian publishing probably has a different history because of being right next to the US. Whereas here, we did have a much more strongly locally vibrant um, trade publishing uh, industry. And Penguin Australia were right at the forefront of that as a publisher and as a distributor. And, and Penguin Australia went through similar sorts of challenges as Penguin in the UK, including uh, we had uh, here our equivalent of the Lady Chatley case. So the, the Lady Chatley case in, in the UK was a real turning point in um, censorship uh, and in culture. And we had the same thing with uh, Philip Roth in the 70s. I think it was at uh, Portnoy's complaint, the same sort of thing. We had it, our censorship regime probably lasted a bit longer than the, um, the UK uh, version. But Penguin in Australia was right at the middle of that. And they were really important in challenging and eventually breaking through the censorship regime and contributing to the emergence of an Australian culture. So, yeah, I'm happy to stick my neck out and say it was an Anglo-Australian venture with an Anglo-Australian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you also uh, do credit the other brothers. You say that new sales and distribution channels would need to be dug and the most would need to be made of each brother's expertise in display, marketing, promotion, sales, and logistics so that the imprints could, and this is interesting, the imprints contagious good cheer could reach bookshops and readers. That's a very interesting sort of brand, isn't it, to have this good cheer about it? Well, that's a really good point. And a lot of people who don't sort of work or live in publishing don't understand this, but The publisher's job is not to sell books to people. The publisher's job is to sell books to bookshops. Well, more and more, maybe not, but certainly back then it was. Yes, definitely, definitely. Yes, that is changing. So if Penguin could convince bookshops to stock these very appealing, you know, appealing in terms of their content, but also their packaging and how they're marketed, um, you know, very quickly bookshops were having Penguin displays with Penguin logos and Penguin sections you know, all yeah. of that very appealing if you're a bookseller. 
because people would buy five of these at once. It puts the uh, it certainly puts their shoppers in a good mood, doesn't it, to see them frolicking around like that? Yeah, definitely. And before Penguin was launched, uh, John Lane had done this incredible world tour as a sort of a traveler for the Bodley Head, uh, and so he'd gone all around the world meeting you know, authors and publishers and, and different kind of book markets uh, and notionally, you know, marketing uh, the, the firm's books. And so he had a really good sense of what would play where, um, the different kinds of trends in the international markets. And he brought that uh, very much back to the, to the bathroom uh, conversations. Yeah. Uh, you also emphasise the fact that Alan was into astrology and and you quote one Kate Murray of Decoy Avenue and she says you appear to be much more fixed and determined than you are you are rather inclined to waver and be indecisive you will meet with many changes in your life and you will generally find that you will be as <laughs> this fits right in with your your theme of course uh, you will be assisted by someone at all important moments in your career. Although you are exceptionally forceful and energetic, you seem to need the stimulation of another person's mind and character to do your best work. And there will nearly always be someone to afford that. Hence, you will not stand alone and create your own destiny, but the help and advice of some other person will be of great service to you. Yes. So the whole point of a book like this is to open up stories rather than to close them off, right? And I reckon you could do a whole PhD just on the relationship between ast astrological advice uh, and, and the history of Penguin, right? Alan took all that very seriously. I, I, I obviously don't take any of that seriously, but it's very, very interesting content because if you're actually able to write in a biography and in a company history that the, you know, the notional uh, um, CEO is getting that kind of advice, is taking it seriously, and in some ways the advice is quite thoughtful and congruent to the sorts of you know, trends and dynamics within the, the Penguin uh, executive. It's utterly fascinating. And I think, yeah, that particular astrologer or occultist or whatever, whatever her niche was, she was a, a very astute amateur psychologist. Yes, and, and I think it, it really kind of shook him too, didn't it? Yes, well, there's one line where it says something like "you'll never be a leader on your own," sort of thing, and he was, you know, shocked and appalled. <laughs> yeah, because that's exactly what his intention was—to be, to be the, you know, the solo act. Should mention Tischold, and they called him. What was it? They called him Tishy. Tishy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, he actually is probably best known, yeah, for his penguin composition rules. Yes, I, I have mixed views about Tischold. Like, he was a very capable typographer. And obviously, the penguin aesthetic that he helped create is, is incredibly good, right? Uh, he was a very fastidious and, and clever and effective typographer. But he had quite a narrow worldview and, and very kind of eccentric ideas as well uh, if you read if you read his views around things like some of the classic 20th century logos like the vespa logo 
and at some other um, iconic logos. He just didn't get why they were effective. He didn't understand it. Right. He had right. quite a, a narrow expertise uh, and and a very narrow aesthetic. And if you went even slightly outside that, he was he was quite lost. And he had a very kind of eccentric personality as well. So he would send instructions to to the staff at Penguin or to the printers of Penguin, and they would challenge him. And he would say, "Who do they think I am? I am Jan Tischold." You know, you you, you don't sort of um, you know question the master. Yeah, quite a, a complex and eccentric character, which obviously meant he fit right in. Right. I, I think Alan wasn't quite sure about... Oh, no, Alan went over, just went over with, um, what was his name, Simon, and pitched uh, to Sheldon, paid him big bucks, right? Yeah, they offered him, I think, yeah, it was more than Alan and Richard's salaries combined. Jeez. And, and that was just for one year? Because he was there for two or three years, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. And Richard was sceptical, mainly on the financial side, I think, rather than the competency. And I think Richard was, was instrumental in expanding Tishold's role from being just a sort of a typographer to being more like a kind of production manager and, and a, um, you know, something with a wider footprint uh, in the business. And, you know, obviously, as I said, that, that worked well until I think there, were, uh, there was a change in the rules in, in the UK around how foreigners could earn income and how that was taxed uh, and so it ended up that Tishold went back to to Europe and I think ended up working in advertising and other things yeah it was a relatively brief period but incredibly important uh, because early on even though Penguin had a, a strong aesthetic and even though they were typographically appealing the typography w- didn't have that discipline and that purity and that consistency no. um, in the say the um, you know the late uh, late 30s early 40s for example Okay, just winding down here to uh, to just recap some of the factors that played into the success. Uh, small legible typefaces, paper covers, the ideal rectangular format, low prices, good design, ornithological branding, color coding, mass printing, mass distributions. The Lanes did not invent any of the elements that came together in the making of Penguin. All were freely available in the public domain and several had been there for centuries, but the Lanes melded and branded and delivered a compelling combination of the parts. I think most people would agree with that. And you say that they especially the two the two brothers you know besides alan they really followed through early on yeah as i said if you're an entrepreneur and if you're a startup three quarters of it is delivery you can have as many great yeah. ideas as you like but you actually have to follow through you have to put a, a business framework around it you have to actually fulfill your promises <laughs> to customers and to suppliers and others and yeah i think it's it's pretty clear that in those early years in particular, uh, the, the other two brothers were, were just as important, if not more important, in the fulfilment of, of the idea. So not just in creating the idea, but in the actual fulfilment of it. Yeah. Okay. Toward the end of the book, you talk about Alan being really just so ignorant to Richard about paying him a just a reasonable pension. I think... Richard asked for three thousand, and Alan came back at with you know twelve hundred. It, it's just such an 
an insult after putting your whole life into it like that. Yeah, there's, and there's a series of moments like that in, in the sort of the final stages of their relationship where Alan played, Alan played very hard. And Alan relished the idea of being this, you know, publishing millionaire um, and he relished the myth that he'd created for himself that it was his own creation and that it was his own genius. He literally wrote in one of the Penguin memorial volumes that he was the genius behind Penguin. So he relished that story and Richard wasn't part of that story. You know, Richard's existence undermined that story. Um, so for a whole bunch of reasons, um, Alan was was determined to push Richard out and, and to, yeah, to hold on to uh, that kind of millionaire myth. Yeah. And finally, you you reference the fact that Richard had poured himself into to a manuscript, uh, his his memories of working with the company, and he submitted it to Penguin, and Penguin rejected it. Yes, and we've since fixed that injustice uh, because, as a follow up to this book, Black Ink also published Richard's diary of being a Barwell boy in Australia. So um, with two members of the Lane family and my wife and I, uh, we co-edited uh, an edition of that diary and it's called Outback Penguin. Uh, and so it has now been published. But yeah, you think about that from Richard's point of view, if you've created this imprint, helped steer it through, put up with a whole bunch of uh, nonsense from Alan, and then if you write your memoir uh, and submit it and they say no, it's a pretty terrible life moment. So he had, he had a very happy life towards the end of his life. Alan's final decade was a very dark time, but Richard had a wonderful final uh, life in Australia uh, with his with his wife and, and daughter. And um, yeah, it was it was a, a very productive and, and positive sort of time. Notwithstanding that he'd missed out on a fair share of the you know the penguin business. But yeah, it would have added insult to injury. I think if you're <laughs> in your retirement, if you write that up, and then uh, the, the firm that you helped create uh, didn't publish it. Now, there's a, probably a whole bunch of reasons why they didn't publish it. But anyway, the the, the edition that we've done has um, has come together well. Does it cover the publishing part of his life or not? No, it's mainly it's mainly the Barwell period leading up to that. It does sort of touch on Alan being in um, at the Bodley Head. Alan had a role there very early on as a sort of dog's body apprentice at, at the bodily head and touches on a bit of that. So really your book serves to tell Richard's story. Uh, Richard didn't write much about his life experience at Penguin then? Uh, I, there's not an actual kind of, um, you know, like a, a full memoir, a full biography of it. But there are fragments and there are, there are letters and other documents uh, that, that I've had access to, yeah. Well, that's really commendable that you've given this, uh, shall we say, true perspective? Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from on that. Look, as you know, we're not in the era of uncomplicated truthiness, but, um, yeah, we, we, I, I have been very careful and, and rigorous around the sources uh, that, that informed this book. And it really wasn't that difficult to yes. um, tell quite a different story. Uh, we didn't have to sort of push hard in a particular direction. The, the documentary, documentary record is pretty clear. We are incredibly well endowed with Penguin documentation. 
the key turning points are documented in letters and, and in other other materials. So going through that was just work. It, it was archival work. You know, we didn't have to kind of fill in any gaps or anything like that. So um, I'm very comfortable with the the factual basis of quite a different story that's been told. Um, the other books serve different purposes, right? The the Morpurgo book was really a revenge um, yes. manual. Yeah, the, the Lewis book's a nice piece of publishing and it's a fascinating read, but it's yeah, it was more constrained because it was, in a sense, the official history and it didn't really have an interest or, or, or the resources to go into some of these other dimensions to the story, including the Australian ones. Have you said everything you want to say about Richard and, and John, the other brother? You mean in this interview or in the world of books? In this interview. I think so. I think if you're happy, I think we've, we've got it across. I mean, yeah, we've given a sense of their personalities and, and their, their contributions. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy if you're happy. Well, I'm happy to be able to talk using this technology, talk to you on the other side of the world. And uh, it was great to get to get your Australian <laughs> view of uh, an, a very important and exciting publishing story. It wasn't a purely Australian exercise. The the editor. No, no. I, my sense is that you actually walked and explored Bristol quite intensively. The short answer is I contracted that part of it out. Will Will Eves was the editor, uh, who's obviously English, and and Will was a very very important and capable, and is a very important and capable editor. But he, he played a very important role in this book. Um, so most of the actual going through archives and material I did, but for the yes. UK to actually get access, uh, my wife yeah. travelled over there with um, Louise Lane, who's the granddaughter of Richard Lane, and they took an iPad and uh, and cameras and just took you know three thousand photos in the archive. What about walking around Bristol though? Because you yeah you take us back to their childhood in a lovely way. Thank you. Yes. Well, I think that's a combination of. Fiona and Louise walking around Bristol and going across the big suspension bridge and all that. <laughs> right, um, right. Also, a bit of that is documented in the, you know, in, in the um, archive as well about the brothers doing that and doing the kind of, you know, the billy cart down the hills and, and all of that. Riding their motorcycle. and Yes, that's right. So I think that's in the, um, uh, the Barwell uh, diary, the, the riding the, the motorbike to, over to um, the family grave and that kind of thing, um, and Richard's experience and greeting and, and, and um, meeting all the different people along the way when he rides to work and those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautifully documented story um, and, uh, yeah, very rich uh, in terms of the material. So, no, I've, I've been to, uh, to England but not to, not to Bristol. Uh, we had the, be- the benefit of an actual Lane descendant uh, and, and my wife doing that. And also there was another Australian connection, the chap who was the librarian of our main university library here at the University of Melbourne um, became the head librarian at Bristol. So the two main English archives in Melbourne and in Bristol were, were under control of the same person. Okay. Mm. So just finally, how can how you can get this online? And what's the easiest way to get the book? I don't know. It's a short answer. I'm not sure. Um, like it is, it is an ebook, so I think people can get it through the usual ebook channels. Oak Knoll for a while had copies of it. You know, good old Oak Knoll, who who do the books yep. about books in, in North yep. America. 
They're very good. I'm pretty sure they had copies of it. It's been out for a little while, so uh, I'm not sure what kind of book distribution there would be in, in North America beyond just ordering it from the publisher, right? You know how I got my copy? I uh, I interviewed Will Atkinson at Atlantic in London, and uh, I saw it on the shelf. Ah, really? <laughs> and I said, I can't remember if I just came straight out and said, can I have that? But I ended up getting it anyway. Nice yeah. work, nice work. Oh, you've made my day. Uh, if if um, someone at Grove Atlantic is reading <laughs> Penguin and the Lane Brothers, I don't mind to be too sort of flippant, but it's in a similar category to some other books that I've written where as soon as it comes out, there's a bit of a spike in sales because people want to check whether they've been defamed or not. <laughs> yes. and, and we have been careful not to defame anyone. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's one of those books that um, people who work in publishing know the Alan Lane story or they know versions of the Alan Lane story. And so there is an interest in seeing the, the real story. And it, it is, you know, writing in this area, as you know, it's a blend of writing about book aesthetics and book arts, but also finance and, and um, you know, business planning and stock markets and that kind of thing. So it's a nice, it's, it's an area, an in-between the humanities and commerce area that, that is kind of my home base uh, and um yeah, it's very satisfying to be able to write books that blend those two universes because they're kind of my two universes. Well, it's been very satisfying to talk with you, uh, Stuart Kelts. Thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Brilliant, Nigel. It was terrific. Why don't you just t- tell us there's, uh, there's a couple of other books that are, you know, certainly of interest to, to listeners. There's the one you did on the library, correct? Yes. What's, what's that called? It's called The Library. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, the subtitle is um, A Catalogue of Wonders. Uh, and so that came out in North America through Counterpoint 2018, I think. That had a good run, the library book, and it's been published around the world. And then a follow-up of the library was uh, a book on Shakespeare's library, which used the, the idea of Shakespeare's own library as an excuse to go into a whole bunch of Shakespearean-related biblio hoaxes and biblio mysteries uh, and uh, yeah, both of those are distributed through Penguin Random House. Super. Now, I really appreciate having a chat with you. I can see the sun going down gradually at your end. Yeah, it's all dark in here now. Very good. Okay, Stuart. Great to talk. Brilliant. Take care. You too.